economics needs feminism and feminism needs economics. It's so key for solving the problems we have today. I firmly believe this is the perspective we need. This is what can fix our economic problems. Welcome to SheEO.World, a podcast about redesigning the world. I'm your host, Vicki Saunders. In each episode, you'll hear from SheEO venture founders, women who are working on the world's to-do list. These innovative business leaders are solving some of the major challenges of our times. Please sit back and be prepared to be inspired. Welcome, Katrine. It's amazing to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about who you are. So my name is Katrine Marsal. I'm from Sweden. I'm an expert in feminist economics. I live in the UK. You might be able to hear that from my accent that I lived here for a while. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, which is about how economics forgot about women. And I was lucky that that book was translated into more than 20 languages. So I had kind of a long ride with that. And now I've finish my second book and it's uh, coming out in English next year. And that book is called Mother of Invention, How Good Ideas Are Ignored in an Economy Built for Men. I literally cannot wait for that to come out. (laughs) Perfect, (laughs) perfect timing. Oh my gosh. So let's go back to who cooked Adam Smith's dinner, which is absolutely delicious. Can you explain a little bit behind that for people who may not be familiar with Adam Smith's theories? (laughs) Yes. So Adam Smith is considered to be the founding father of economics. And he asked the founding question of economics back up here in Scotland, back in 1776 in his book, which was called The Wealth of Nations. And the question that he asks in that book, which became the founding question of economics, was how do you get your dinner? And that's a very good economic question because, you know, we take it for granted or that we can go into the store and there will be goods to buy there and that this whole system will work. But actually for it to work, lots of very complex economic processes need to take place. And he wanted to know what keeps all of this together, what gets the economy going, what makes the wheels turn, and you know, why does this whole complex thing actually work? So he asked, how do you get your dinner? And he wrote a very famous answer to this question, which goes something like this. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that you get your dinner, but from them serving their own self-interest. So the idea was that it was that we all go to work, we start our businesses, we do what we do out of self-interest to turn a profit. And this became very, very important. And it was kind of what sort of economics was built upon, this idea of self-interest as the fundamental force in the economy. I go back to this founding question of economics in my book and, okay, let's take it seriously. It's a good question. How do you get your dinner? Well, how did Adam Smith get his dinner? The founding father of economics never married. He lived most of his life with his mother who looked after the household for him. And she is the part of the answer to the question, how do you get your dinner, that he forgot. Because all the work that primarily women do, but also men in this world today, the sort of the unpaid work around the household, you know, the looking after the children, the cooking, all of that is, of course, also extremely important to any economy. The butcher, the brewer, or the baker, they can't go to work and produce their goods if this other economy is not working, as many of us probably have experienced now during the 
pandemic, for example, with the children when childcare was closed and, you know, you had to do paid work and more unpaid work. And it's very, very necessary for any economy. And economics has completely forgotten about it. It's not even measured in GDP, which is absolutely ridiculous and gives us this really kind of false picture of what the economy is. But the other bit is like when Adam Smith forgot about his mother, she forgot, he forgot about the work that she did and forgot about the unpaid work of women, that made him answer the whole question wrong. Because is it then really self-interest only that keeps the economy going? I mean, Adam Smith's mother, she probably did what she did, you know, looked after her son partly because of self-interest. She was a widow in Scotland in the 1700s. There were not sort of massive economic opportunities, but she probably also did it because, you know, she loved him, she cared for him, she felt this was her obligation, maybe it was even meaningful to her. All of these other reasons why we do what we do in the economy every day that economics has forgotten and not been very good at focusing on because it's been so interested in this this idea of self-interest as the only kind of economically relevant force to study. It's just unbelievable, truly, that it's lasted this long. Yes. (laughs) Isn't it just unreal? So let's just fast forward to the pandemic for a moment. And is this the moment where everything is being unveiled from your perspective that we just see? you know, now that everyone is locked in at home, how we are all humans, not human resources, and the challenge of being a human in this crazy economy we've created. What has the pandemic done to support the work that you've been doing over the past decade, I guess? Yeah, well, it certainly made the importance of unpaid work, you know, to the economy, the looking after the children and all of that, how fundamental that is. It's made that very, very visible. And it's made that conflict, which I've been writing about in economic terms, I think something that people have really been forced to to grapple and sort of deal with. I have to do my job and the kids are here and normally they're at school and, you know, there are only 24 hours in the day and this is not working. And also we know now from statistics that the the people that have been sort of bearing the brunt of that sort of additional care work that the pandemic has forced people to do has been women, right? And that would probably have have an impact. I mean, so the bigger theme in, in that book, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, is really, you know, what do we value and why? You know, when Adam Smith forgot about his mother and economics became defined as the science of self-interest, everything that's not done out of self-interest also kind of disappeared from the economic sphere and it wasn't really valued. And I think this crisis has, has made us think about these really fundamental questions like why are care workers paid so little? You know, why is nursing, you know, not paid more. That's been a big discussion here in the United Kingdom where I live. You know, what do we value and why? And we saw the people that, you know, the necessary, the frontline workers who were so necessary for anything to to work, especially this this spring, they they tend to be people whose jobs are not valued normally. And I think this has made many people think about the economy and how it works and why we value what we value and maybe think twice about the value of care and health and these sort of things. But I think it's too early to say, you know, where this is going. We're still in the middle of it. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, I think there's um, an American commentator named Scott Galloway. I don't know if you follow him on Twitter. And one of his things is like, every week during the pandemic is like a year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I kind of feel that way too. It's just like, whatever trends were sort of emerging pre-COVID, 
have fast forwarded almost a decade, really, it feels like. And so we're really starting to see like now, nobody would have predicted 10 months ago that we'd be talking about universal basic income so clearly because that's what governments are starting to do, calling it something different. The elevation of systems transformation and bias systems as a conversation is really kind of blowing my mind. I mean, I, when we first started CEO, I'd be like, everything's broken. What a great time to be alive to rethink things. And people would be like, what's broken? What do you mean? Mm. <laughs> that was only five years ago. And now everyone's like, oh yeah, everything is really, it's not broken, but it's definitely not serving us any longer and needs to be rethought. So as you worked through this book, I'm sure you got lots of interesting feedback. What happens across the economics landscape when this book comes out for you? Did you have pushback? Were people very much like, this is the time for this message? My previous book, Who Cooked Donald's Most Dinner? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I wrote it a long time ago. I wrote it back in Sweden in 2011. So very much kind of still with the 2008-2009 crisis as a financial crisis, as the backdrop and in the middle of the euro crisis, which was, you know, a very big thing here in here in Europe, obviously. If you'd asked me back then if I think that I'd still be talking about that book in 2020, I'd say no way, because I had this idea that we would have solved this problem by now. Because I think it's such like the exclusion of women from economics, the exclusion of unpaid work from GDP, the exclusion of care work, and that we don't sort of account for it and we don't think about it and this focus on on self-interest, self-interest, self-interest. I thought that would be gone because I thought economics was changing so rapidly after 2008, 2009, and we would certainly be like in a different system by now. Well, instead, I've had the book published in many countries and, you know, been able to sort of travel around and, and speak to, to women all over the world almost about these issues. And that has been great. But yes, it's frustrating that more has not happened. But yes, when it first came out, it was much more controversial than I would say it is now. I think people are really starting to think about these things. I think also within the feminist community, there's much more interest in economic issues than there was 10, 12 years ago. And I think that's very encouraging. Economics needs feminism and feminism needs economics. It's so key for solving the problems we have today. I firmly believe this is the perspective we need. This is what can fix our economic problems. And that's what my forthcoming book is about. Yeah, I'd love to get to that in a sec. One of the this is something that fundamentally believe at CEO too. It's like the, the last mile of the feminist revolution is economics. We started with the political, but it just is constantly changing back and forth. But when women take control of their money and when we look at, at systems of a healthy economy and a, a life-sustaining society, what does that look like? And it feels like an absolute moment to rethink. What do we value? What kind of world do we want to live in? And I hear people starting to talk about the care economy dripped into conversations in different places. So it's going to be fascinating to watch. And we have a giant global experiment, it seems, going on with different leadership styles in different countries, picking strategies and going in multiple directions. So I think in a few years from now, we're going to see the results of a kindness-based leadership versus not doubling down on the old self-interest piece. So who knows what that looks like. Can you take us a little bit into your book? Give us a sneak peek of what's coming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So it's, it's all about how innovation has been held back because of our ideas about gender. So it starts in a very concrete example, which is the suitcases with wheels. So they were not invented until 1972, which is 
to us now crazy. You know, how were we able to put two men on the surface of the moon before we came up with the idea that, you know, suitcases should have wheels? I mean, the wheel was by then a 5,000 year old technology. And this has become a little bit of a sort of the classic example of innovation takes time. And you have lots of economists that have written about this, you know, from Professor Robert Schiller, you know, Nobel Prize winner to economic thinkers like Nassim Taleb, you know, they've all sort of thought about this and, and how could this be? And I do a new take on it. And I would say I'd found something which they have not seen, which is that the wheeled suitcase took so long because of ideas about gender. There were, in fact, suitcases with wheels before 1972, but they were all these sort of small niche products for women. And there was a very, very strong idea within the industry and at department stores that a man would never roll a bag because it was just unmanly. Men should carry their bags. And women, you know, they were not important because a woman doesn't travel alone anyway, was the assumption that if she travels, there will be a man with her who will carry her bag for her. So even when the suitcase was invented, in, the suitcase with wheels was invented in 1972, American department stores, they didn't want to buy it because they couldn't see any demand for this product. And then obviously we know what happened in the late 1980s, early 1990s, this product completely took off and transformed not just the global luggage industry, but you know, the way we build airports, the way we build airplanes. And it changed everything because gender roles changed. Women started going on business trips on their own at a much larger scale. And yeah, the market just changed and it took off. And what's interesting with this is because this is such a classic example that so many men have thought about, you know, why, why did it take so long? And nobody has really looked into the gender aspect of it, which is very, very obvious. It did not take me many hours in newspaper archives to, to figure this out. Because, yeah, there are suitcases with wheels from the 1950s that they will show at kind of trade shows for housewives in London and these sort of things. It was a product for women and nobody thought oh, this is something that men will also use, or this is something that can actually be useful for everyone, or this is something that will completely disrupt the whole global luggage industry. That was just unthinkable. That's where the book starts, because it's a very concrete example, because you have the same dynamic when it comes to many other things. You know, the electric car is another example. So 130, 150 years ago, we had electric cars, we had petrol-driven cars, we had even cars driven by steam, and they were all competing for the industry. And the electric car was actually marketed towards women and became to be perceived as a, as a feminine technology because the combustion engine that was driven on petrol was noisy and smelly and went fast and sort of the quiet, safer electric car became something that they marketed towards female consumers, which became a massive problem for the electric car industry 130, 120 years ago. Because then when something was marketed towards women and perceived as feminine in that sense, men didn't want to buy it. And this actually contributed to the fact that it was then the petrol powered car that took over and we ended up building our whole world based on that technology. It wasn't the only factor, but it's because, you know, the electric cars, they had problems with batteries and there were, there were other factors as well, but gender was certainly one part to this puzzle. And when you think about that, you know, there were these very, very random ideas that like a, a safe, quiet, comfortable, car was just just unmanly and just not good and 
within innovation, a lot of things that have been done for comfort have been considered to be feminine and therefore not taken seriously. So there's a long tradition in this. So the book starts with these very concrete examples of, you know, when our ideas about gender have held us back and really even, you know, delayed technologies that we now take for granted sometimes for hundreds of years. To think about technology and how we define technology is very important if we want to understand where men and women are in the economy, because the definition of what technology is has also dictated who should be paid a lot and who should not be paid as much or maybe nothing at all. So what I mean by that is technology has throughout history been defined as whatever men do in a way. I mean, we talk about the Iron Age or the Bronze Age, but we might as well talk about the Ceramic Age or the Flax Age because those technologies were just as important. But ceramics or a kind of technology associated with women and therefore not considered to be technology in the same way that iron or bronze is. If you go through history, this is what happens. Whatever sort of women do or specialize in is defined as something that's not technological. It's something natural. You know, when women were very dominant in the, in the dairy industry in Europe, for example, it was considered to be a natural thing. Like women knew how to produce cheese and deal with milk because women had breasts that could lactate. So it was a natural skill. And if something is a natural skill, economic logic kind of dictates that it shouldn't be paid so much because it, it comes natural to women anyway. But then as soon as dairy took off and became more, with the industrialization, became more and more important, what didn't happen was that the women who already had the skills suddenly got rich. No, they were squeezed out instead. And the men came in and they, and they turned sort of the whole thing around and, and started, you know, milk and cheese. It became like a technical profession that you could study, you know, chemistry. And suddenly it became a more highly paid and highly paid industry and the women were squeezed out and kept doing things that, that were considered to be natural. So this distinction between what's natural and what's technological really sort of goes together with our ideas about men and women. This becomes a, a problem because, I mean, like today, we say, oh, the reason to close the gender pay gap between men and women is to get women, you know, we have to get women into STEM, right? Women have to go into these, we have to encourage girls, teach them to code, teach them to go into these highly paid professions, and then we will close the gender pay gap. But I mean, even I remember my mother was a programmer and then a developer back in the days when computer programming was, was female dominated. And it wasn't considered to be, a, you know, not a very skilled thing to do. You know, women were able to cook from recipes or knit. And so therefore women were also naturally good computer programmers. That was the idea. And it wasn't until sort of this profession became more and more highly paid and more and more economically important that the men came in and redefined it as something completely different as, and as technological. And I think it's very important to be aware of this dynamic that it's not that women are not in the highly paid professions or the highly paid parts of the economy. They are highly paid because women are not there. And if more women come into a profession, what often happens is that wages goes down and status goes down. And this makes the whole project of gender equality much more complicated, obviously, because it can't just be about encouraging women to go somewhere, go over there where all the money is and all the guys are, because if the women go over there, then that won't be where the power is anymore. 
So instead, we need to have this, which I think you know you are doing at Shio, is building new structures, building something new, not just sort of trying to get a bigger piece of the same old cake for women, but actually baking a whole new cake based on different values, doing it from scratch. And that's what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, I, having spent many years on this planet trying to get underneath this issue, <laughs> what are the roots? What's this? Like, it's just so insidious. You think, oh, it must be, if we just do this, it'll change it. And then just recognizing how complex our systems are and how challenging it is to unravel this underneath it all is exactly what you said, this lack of valuing things women do, period, right? You yeah. just see it with doctors in Russia. The vast majority of doctors are now women and it's just, they're paid poorly. I know. And I mean, I, I remember my mother as a programmer when I was little, all her managers were, they were these women with kind of big hair that came to our house with cakes, sort of, you know, it wasn't the, that was the programmer. It wasn't, you know, what we think about now when, when like a young man, young, not very social man in a hoodie, right? It completely changed and we forgot about it. I mean, many economists today don't even know that sort of programming used to be female dominated and, and was considered to be like an extension of women's ability to cook from recipe books. This just feels like if I sort of step back and listen to this, first of all, I think you're awesome. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation and just the, the continuous sort of unraveling of the narrative, like who wrote history as well and what lens are we looking through of our lived experience when we write what actually happened and how you can literally erase the reality of what it was. So I, I'm just so thankful that you wrote this book. I don't know if you're out talking about this book uh, yet or when is it coming out? So it's coming out in Sweden now in October. It will be coming out in the UK and Canada uh, next year. Next year. Okay. Yeah. So the timing is absolutely perfect. And what are you noticing in the field of economics? At, there are a lot of women emerging right at the moment with a very different perspectives. We've got Kate Raworth talking about donut economics. We've got Marianne Mazzucato talking about innovation and how we value everything. Your book, we're all very excited and anticipatory around. I wonder if there's a resurgence or a, like, an, I don't know, insurgence <laughs> happening right now around it's time to really hear these voices? Yeah, I think so. I mean, not all of these you know, sort of new female voices within economics are talking about climate change, but I think a lot of them are. And I think the issue of you know the climate emergency and what that requires of us in terms of changing our economies and changing how we live, I think that is something, also when I speak to young women going into economics, that is something that really motivates them to learn. That's why this problem of you know the, how we exclude women from economics and pretend that it's this science of self-interest, which it isn't. You know, you can't explain something as complex as the global economy by just saying, "Oh, it's just individuals out there serving their own self-interest in a rational model." It's not true. And if we want to do something very difficult, which we have to do now if we want to survive on this planet, which is change our economies and change how they work. We need to actually understand how the economy works today. And I feel that is motivating, firstly, a lot of women to go into economics and secondly, also to do it differently, to account for the things that we have not accounted for in the past, to really look at, you know, like you, you mentioned Mariana Mazzucato, like, okay, innovation is really, really important if we want to fix this, if we want to have, you know, we need a Green New Deal. What really drives innovation? And that drives a lot of people to challenge these old models because we need to fix this problem. And so do you have a daughter? I have two daughters and a son, yeah. What are you anticipating is coming next for them? Oh, 
in what sense? Do you feel optimistic? I really do. I'm not that old, I think. <laughs> so I'm 37 and I just look back at what's happened in the last 15 years. I mean, even when I when I studied economics back at university, we had, you know, and this is in Sweden, which is supposed to be, you know, very good when it comes to gender equality on many measurements. But I mean, we had professors who were sort of standing in front of the class saying men are just inherently better at economics than women. And that would not happen today. I mean, and this was, this was not that long ago. A lot has changed. And that makes me hopeful. I mean, even things, you know, like we, we lived through the Me Too movement and feminism has become much better at, it's not just white feminism, which, you know, I think even 15 years ago, it really, really was. That is starting to get challenged in, in very good ways. And yeah, I am, I am hopeful. People are, are coming together around, you know, the need to build something new. And we don't know what that is, but, but yeah, I'm hopeful. How about you? Uh, yeah, wildly. Wildly. Uh, wildly. I mean, I think this is the awakening moment. I'm 55, so I've been around a little bit longer. And I mean, first of all, it's just kind of shocking as you start to see the unraveling of all of this. I really believe so much has changed in the last five years, even having been around the world talking in front of lots of groups of women and watching this sort of awakening occur, particularly around money, which I think is just absolutely critical in the redefining of money and what really matters to us. And having founded a basically a nonprofit VC firm, oxymoron of the year, yeah. <laughs> knowing that 51% of the population's innovations are not showing up in the economy because we're just not recognized, period, and we get 2.2% of funding globally. You just look at those numbers and think this is crazy. To your point, we could have a completely different economy if we had more voices at the table and more of these innovations coming forward and recognized. And so, you know, when we first started GEO, I'm like, we are here to transform the global economy. And that didn't actually really stick too much. <laughs> People were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, okay, let's just start by funding women. And <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But it really, it's the only hope. If we don't dramatically transform our economy, we will not survive on the planet, period. And I do believe that there's a perspective that women can bring to the table that is much more healing and much more in tune with nature. And so I, I really love your framing around the natural versus the technological and how there's the balance of the masculine and feminine everywhere will be better for all of us. So yeah, I feel quite positive about it and it's going to be a bumpy ride. But that, it's interesting what you're saying, you know, oh, we're going to start by just funding women because that will, I mean, and I know you know this, transform the global economy because the two go together. And that's what my work on my forthcoming book, Mother of Invention, has been really interesting in that way because it's really driven home the point, which I wrote about in my previous book as well, is you can't just add women and stir, right? If you add women, everything changes. So for example, just look at the, like the history of innovation. So we have this kind of idea at the back of our minds, I think, about that this myth really that our drive to innovate is somehow connected to and tied to our will to dominate and conquer the world, right? There are all of these stories about, 
oh, you know, everything from penicillin to Pilates was first invented for the military and kind of the military invents things. And then hopefully these inventions can also be turned into something that is useful and will drive growth. But innovation is this is violent father of invention that drives us to conquer and therefore we come up with new ideas and therefore we get growth. And that whole story is bullshit. And, you know, you don't need to have a degree in economics to understand that because obviously war and conflict always destroys much more economic value than it ever creates in terms of innovation. And that's pretty self-evident, but it's all tied to this sort of idea that we think of our own development as we were some kind of hairy ape that one day got, got up on two legs and turned into this bearded man and immediately grabbed a sharp stick to create a spear and sort of try to conquer his the world around him. And that's the story of innovation. But actually, the first tools were not hunting tools. We will never know 100% because it's so far back in time, you know, which were the first tools, what was the first technology, but it probably wasn't hunting tools. It was probably something like the digging stick. That was probably the first form of technology. The digging stick invented by women, not to conquer or, you know, but to reach edible roots and insects underground. Just changing that story, just like, okay, we're not just going to look at male inventions, we're going to look at female inventions as well, which brings you to the digging stick, which was the first tool that changes the whole story. You know, if that was the first tool and not the spear, then it's not necessarily our will to conquer and dominate that drives us to invent technology or come up with new ideas. It's other things as well. And that's why I find so, so interesting that if you just add women, if you just look at women as well, then the whole human story changes. And that's where the hope lies. Oh, that is literally the perfect place to end. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. I'm so excited to read this book and I will amplify everywhere we go. We're so thrilled to have met you and thank you very much for all you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CEO.world podcast. If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. If you'd like more information about SheEO, please visit us at SheEO.world. That's S-H-E-E-O dot world.